This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Hi, guys. Today, we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Paul Litchfield. So this guy is awesome. He is a legend in the sneaker game. So for all my sneakerheads out there, you are not going to want to miss this episode. He is one of the most influential product creation experts in the athletic performance footwear industry in the world right now and has been for the last several decades. He had a 30-year, near 30-year career at Reebok, and he is the inventor of my favorite basketball shoe of all time, and that is the Reebok Pump. The, the thing with me is like I would try on all these other different shoes and I would have to, you know, adjust how tight they were throughout the game. But with the Reebok pump, if you've ever worn it, you remember you could pump it up to make it tighter or let a little bit of the air out to loosen it up. So throughout the game, you know, if your feet are swelling or anything like that, you could take care of it. This guy, again, he's being humble in the podcast when we talk about it, but he is the main driver and inventor of that. But now he works over with our friends at GoRuck as the head of product. And the, this podcast was such a fun thing because every time I've talked to Lich, I just call him Lich. Every time that we've talked, we've just kind of hit it off and we're just talking about all kinds of different things, we're talking about fitness overall, talking about gear, talking about everything that you could possibly imagine. And I just kind of carried that over into this podcast. I didn't do a lot of prep with them. You know, beforehand, I just said, hey, I'm just going to flow. I don't have a lot of notes. Let's just kind of see where we can get to. And it's going to lead us up and tee us up for future conversations where we're going to get into more stuff that GoRuck is doing because a lot of the stuff that he's shown me and told me about is not stuff that is for public consumption yet, but will be before too long. I will tell you, he is from Boston. And so there is a small language warning on this. So if you've got little ears around, he just kind of talks the way he talks. So there's a little bit of language in this one, but it's not that big a deal for most of you. But guys, I really enjoyed my time with him and I hope you do as well. So without further ado, let's get into it. Paul Litchfield, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thank you, sir. How you doing, Kyle? Man, I'm doing good. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. I know we had to move it a couple of times. So I'm glad we finally got it down. And what's funny about this interview, and I'll tell you right from the beginning, the first time you and I met on the phone, like we hit it off so well. I was like, okay, when we eventually do this interview, like it's just going to, we're just going to have fun. Like I yep. know you like have all these quotes that I want to ask people about. I have a, a general idea of, of your career and we'll work our way through it, but I'm just excited to get to talk to you. And I know I didn't tell you this offline, but if my, uh, if my video kind of messes up a little bit, um, you know, it'll look better on the back end. So don't worry about it. But Paul, uh, sorry. So I don't know if you have enough filters to make me look better on the back end. Okay. You know what? You know, that's kind of our peek behind the curtain guys with our recording software. It's like, we, we look the way we look. Okay. And you know, Dude, face for radio. Hey, don't, don't talk bad about yourself, Paul. I'm not yeah. going to allow that. Not on this podcast. And All right. All right, man. We're good. And if I call you Lich throughout this podcast, uh, that's a term of endearment. I know a lot of people call you Lich, so I'm not sure what'll come out of my face, but let's start basic. Let's start simple. Where are you from? Even though we can kind of pick it up a little bit from your accent, but where are you from? What was your upbringing like? So uh, I'm uh, I'm from Boston. I, I I grew. I did high school and uh, uh, schooling in the suburbs, but I was grew. I, I was born in the city, uh, and uh, Boston is uh, a big name that's about the size of most cities' neighborhoods. It's not a it's not a huge footprint, right? Yeah. So uh, the suburbs and and the surrounding area usually uh, encompass what would be tip, you know typical cities. Uh, so I grew up there and uh, stayed there my whole life and uh, well, went to school, uh, went to uh, university um, just up the coast at the uh, in the University of New Hampshire, which is, uh, you know, 35 miles from Boston. 
and uh, never never ventured anywhere back in the day. I um, my my dad my mom and dad were working people, so we we had a an ample but a fairly you know modest upbringing, typical of somebody in the uh, late '60s, early '70s in the Boston area. So yeah, just re- regular regular stuff. You know, have my share of uh, uh, bumps and grinds, and I have my share of good days too. So. Well, hey, I appreciate that. I do want to ask you real quick before we get into uh, the most fun stuff. I know there are a lot of misperceptions because you mentioned that people think that Boston's enormous, but if you've ever been there, it is it is pretty small in terms of land area. But, you know, growing up in Boston and meeting a lot of people that didn't grow up in Boston, what are kind of the common misperceptions about growing up in that city? Um, uh, common misperceptions, I, I think one of them is that we're not friendly. We're actually wicked friendly. All right. <laughs> Right. It's a unique friendliness though. No, like no, if you're not used to it. Well, yeah, it's, um, uh, we're not bashful. Okay. Right. You know, so, so, so it's, it's not like, it's not like we're going to sneak up on you. We'll probably, you know, Bostonians will probably come right at you and just be uh, real candid and, uh, pretty upfront and, uh, cynicism and sarcasm are kind of, um, part and parcel with everyday language. And, uh, and it's also, it's also what makes the day fun, you know? Yeah. I mean, the people I've been around, that's why I like Boston so much more than New York, because I spent time in, in both cities and with people from both cities. And it's just like, man, New York is is fast and rude, but Boston is like fast and funny. Like, it's just a little bit of a different thing. It feels more homey for whatever reason. But one of the big reasons why I wanted to have you on is because you have an incredibly unique background. You have, you've had an incredibly unique and legendary career in the sneaker industry. And so we're going to get into that. I know there's some sneaker heads that listen to this podcast that, you know, are probably familiar with a lot of stuff that you've done, but most of us wouldn't even have an, an idea. Like you can't go to the university of wherever and get a degree in sneaker head or a degree in, you know, shoe design, I don't think, or something like that. So when did it start for you though, Lich getting like, just getting interested in shoes, sneakers. And, you know, when did you kind of figure out that that's might be something that you would want to do? All right. So it's, it's, it's super late. I'll be as brief as possible. So back in the day, uh, like I said, I grew up in a neighborhood um, and, um, and we were working class, but this one of my buddies, his dad was actually the sales rep for all of the East Coast for Adidas, and this is back in the this is back. So I'm an old dude, right? So I was born in 1960. So so in the early 70s, this is before the running boom and stuff like that. You know, like um, um, there was the Adidas Gazelles, the Puma uh, Puma Clydes, which are kind of famous suede shoes and things like that. And um, we used to once a year go in and be able to raid his cellar that uh that had all the salesman samples and stuff so you know it was like it was better than christmas like like there was yeah. all kinds of cool stuff so uh we got interested in sneakers back then uh, because it would be because it was in kind of in the neighborhood and then in the family because um it became a family thing so uh then i went to uh, undergrad up in new hampshire like i said and ran into a couple of issues um so I was, uh, let's say, restricted to uh, to quarters. Okay, uh, okay. ended up uh, ended up going to a, uh, and I was on the uh, I was on the track team at the time, uh, and I was a power lifter. So I was interested in nutrition and performance and things, and um, got familiar. I get got introduced to a guy who helped me design a major, and I became I, I did I had this background in biochemistry and nutrition and exercise science. I wanted to study the body. Went on to grad school at UMass Amherst, um, and uh, and and. I started doing exercise science. When I was back at UNH, um, UNH is in a town called Durham, New Hampshire. Next, The next town over is a town called Exeter. 
So Exeter, New Hampshire doesn't mean anything to anybody really, except if you got some sneakerheads on here. That was that was the uh, that was the headquarters of Nike R and D. It's called Nike Exeter, right? Mm. And back in the day, that was like the mecca for um, for shoe development, shoe creation, and things like that. Okay, even though um, Bill Barman and those guys at Nike were out in Portland, um, the um, Tom Clark and uh, Ned Fredericks and the guys and uh, Jack Daniels, who was a uh, track and field coach, they they actually uh, they were in Exeter, New Hampshire, and it was uh it was just I got a chance to actually do research there as an undergrad. You know, basically, um, mm. I was a support staff, you know, for a class or two. Right. And dude, it was it was epic, and I thought that was my entire endeavor in footwear. But uh, ended up going to UMass, got my master's, started working on a PhD in biochem and nutrition, ended up going to University of uh, Aberdeen in Scotland to do some pretty cool research uh, on performance. Um, and I also did some research for Nike on on some of their uh, air sold shoes, looking at uh, muscle damage and performance and, and how it can help to uh, mitigate uh, muscle soreness and all this kind of stuff. Again, that was a snapshot in time. Came back to finish my PhD, ran into some problems again. Kind of, it's going to be a, re, a redundant story. Uh, right. And, and, and bounced out of that and um, had a chance to go down to University of Florida at Gainesville and get funded by uh, Nautilus. You remember the exercise equipment Nautilus? Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, so that was um, that was basically a, uh, this guy, Arthur Jones, uh, who lived in Ocala, Florida. Um, they were willing to uh, fund me to do some strength research out of the old Phys Ed building, which is right next to Gator Stadium. Uh, and they had some really cool strength stuff going on there. A lot of um, a lot of work on anabolics and steroids and performance stuff. And that was kind of my my shtick back then. Uh, came back to Boston, was getting ready to go, and um, a buddy of mine said, "Hey, why don't you interview this company called Reebok?" And I'd heard of Reebok and all. I'm like, nah, not really. And so I did. I ended, ended up interviewing because my buddy said, "Yeah, come on down." So went down to Reebok and literally um, had an interview. Ended up hanging out with the guys. Ended up. Um, playing in the, uh, this Boston neighborhood basketball league kind of thing, uh, that day with them. Cause they needed somebody to, to be a parking cone there. And so, uh, <laughs> and, and so then I, uh, I was drinking beer with them uh, afterwards, eating some pizza and I'm like, Hey, thanks. This was great. And they go, yeah, yeah, we do this all the time. And I go, yeah, okay, cool. They're like, no, no, no this is what we do. I go, what do you mean? They, they said, you know, we work on shoes, we test them. Then we hang out and drink beer, talk about it. And then we do it again the next day. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I, I had just gone through kind of the ringer and stuff. And I thought I was going to be some wicked smart professor somewhere. Right. And so I'm like, I go, I can do this for a little bit. So I thought, honestly, Kyle, I thought I was going to do that sneaker gig with Reebok for about six months and then go back and finish. And it just so happened I with my science background and with where the sneaker business was at the time, the athletic footwear business was at the time. It was starting to grow and really starting to pop. Um, and. The chemical companies, uh, you know, the rubber companies, the plastic companies, the dials, the DuPonts, those guys, they were all starting to, uh, you know, focus a little bit more on footwear and sneakers and athletic gear. And I had I at least had some background to talk to some of the technical staff and it just it just worked out. So my six months turned into, well, shit, that was in um, that was in November of 85. So here we are now. Ha! <laughs> Hey, and you've been in the industry ever since, and I think you were close to thirty years at Reebok, right? Yeah, I was. I was uh, about four months shorter of uh, of thirty years at Reebok. 
That is, that's so crazy. Of course you don't hear about that anymore about people working at places for that length of time. And, you know, if you've worked somewhere for six months, you know, all the self-help books tell you that you need to go ahead and move on. But I do want to kind of mention as an aside here, uh, it only took us less than 10 minutes before you said wicked smart, like, and you just kind of threw that in. And I think that's two or three wicked so far. So I think we're going to have a little tally of the amount of times you use wicked, because this is the most Boston thing that's ever happened on the show. And I am loving it. I am all here for it. But so I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, it'll be wicked, person, because what I do is I'll, I'll drop a bunch of wickeds and some other, some other vernacular in there, so that you can, uh, you can uh, highlight it with. Uh, you'll have to probably highlight it and then translate it for people. That's okay. Like I'll make sure I slow it down because guys, you have the the capability of listening to this at half time speed. I know I tell you all the time to listen to two times, but just so you can get every word in there, make sure you get it down to half speed. All right, bro. And so before we we kind of move on, like in, into to all those different things, I told you this, and this is how you and I kind of got to you know hooked up together because I was mentioning to Jason McCarthy, who's the CEO of GoRuck and, and founder of GoRuck, and I've had him on the show, and you know we'll talk more about GoRuck you know later on. I mentioned talking about certain shoes. And I mentioned how my favorite basketball shoe of all time was the Reebok pump that I had worn, you know, different Nikes. I had worn some Jordans and different things like that. And I wasn't like a huge basketball player, but when I would go play pickup with my friends, the most comfortable and the ones that I enjoyed the most were the Reebok pump. And then he's like, Oh, well, I got to introduce you to Lich. And I was like, well, who's that? He's like, he invented the Reebok pump. So that's my setup, Lich, for for this next part is you didn't just work at Reebok. You weren't just, you know, the fulfilling orders or something like that in a back room the entire time. You invented one of the most iconic sneakers in the history of the entire game. So I know that's kind of a weird place to set it up, and I know there's a whole lot that goes into it, but how the heck did you invent the Reebok pump? All right, cool. Well, uh, thanks, brother. I appreciate that. And um, what we'll do is, uh, like, next little break that we have, I'm gonna I'll roll over, and I got all my OG stuff right over here in my barn. Uh, and 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 I'll, hey, I'll, we'll just do it live. You walk that laptop wherever you want to go. We won't even take a break. You just do whatever you want to do. All right, very cool, very cool. Uh, we'll do that. Um, so I, I do I do want to actually just specify one thing for for the audience. I didn't invent the Reebok pump. That you know, that's that that's some self-indulgent description, okay? Meaning, and what I mean by that, Kyle, is that like uh, inflation devices, whether they be air splints or mass trousers or you know things like that for um, in the medical field, um, blood pressure cuffs for doing you know, there's all kinds of inflation mechanisms that are used out in the world and that were used back in the day as well. Uh, and uh, and and the uh, and. I had a bunch of people, including an outside firm called Design Continuum. A lot of people helped me. Now, yes, I was in charge of the whole thing. I put it together. I mean, no argument there. But when people say, because we know each other, kid, uh, I, I, I always want to be clear that you know, inventing something, you know, that that takes some real, that takes some work and smart people, and that's not me. Yeah, I happen to be, I, I happen to be kind of Forrest Gumping it right through my life. I happen to be standing in the right place at the right time. So. But yeah, so the pump was mine uh, in, in my project, and I put it together. And what happened was, like I said, when I started at Reebok, um, there was only, I, was only, I was one of six people doing R&D for them and stuff like that. We had three designers, which are styling, graphic designers. Then we had uh, three development slash research engineers, and that well, I was one of them. And, and again, I'm not an engineer by strict definition, but that's what right. they call us. So um, – I had an aptitude talking to the chemical companies and talking to these other. So I, I worked on new materials as well with uh, with like um, uh, the Dow's, the DuPont's. And we worked on cushioning systems. We worked on all kinds of stuff. Well, a couple of years into it, um, the game was changing. The basketball game was changing. 
bigger people, faster people, you know, more full-time uh, athletes as opposed to, you know, uh, kind of like seasonal basketball players and stuff. Um, the Dr. J's, people were playing above the rim and stuff like that, right? Um, so we're trying to make a better basketball shoe. We're trying to do braces and straps and all kinds of things. And we came across um, a uh, – our the Reebok president or owner, Paul Fireman, did a deal, a business deal with Alesse, the tennis company. Uh, it's an Italian company and it's a, you know, it's a kind of like, it's a highbrow kind of tennis brand. So Leonardo Savardi, the owner of Alesse and Paul Fireman get together and the owner of Alesse said, Hey, I got this researcher. Um, he called him a mad scientist. And he turns out that he was up in Montebluna, in Italy, who is putting together all these kinds of different stuff. So I went up and met this guy up in Montebluna, Italy, which is in the uh, in the Alps of, of Italy, and it's just an awesome place. And this guy had made this, uh, took and taken this uh, tennis shoe, and taken a Reikley ski boot. At the time, it was a uh, a pretty high end ski boot uh, that had a pump mechanism on it for fit. And uh, mm -hmm. and so he literally took all the guts out of that ski boot and kind of Frankenstein it and taped it onto this shoe. Now it ended up having, the shoe ended up weighing, I don't know three and a half pounds, you know, like it was, it was, yeah. ridiculous. It was, right. it was ridiculous, but, but, but Paul Fireman, um, Paul Fireman, we showed it to him and he's like, Oh, that's really cool. We should make a shoe like that kind of thing. So the, the, the foundation of it was based on us make trying to looking at new fit devices and new ways to, uh, to make a high performance shoe. And Paul Fireman seeing this, uh, this amalgamation of, of this Frankenstein boot, and he's like, can you make it like that? I'm like, well, we can figure something out. So that's where that's where it all kind of like uh, focused down into can we make uh, some kind of inflatable product? And so describe the process, because I know most people don't work in R&D. They don't really work with experimentation, things like that. Because, you know, for me, you know, uh, as an athlete that played a bunch of different sports and different things like that, one of one of my biggest hangups and problems is like, for me, I've got a really long foot. I've got super high arches, like crazy long, like finger toes. And like, for me, I was always a little bit, my feet were always a little bit hurt and like they, they didn't always work well. And one of the reasons why I really liked the shoes whenever I, whenever I played in the pump was because my, some days my foot felt like swollen and it'd be a little bigger. And other days it was a little tighter or different points in the game. I'd feel my shoes kind of loosen up and you don't want to tighten it down like crazy. Cause that's bad for your foot and bad for your performance as well. So I could literally pump up the shoe or deflate the shoe just a little bit to have, you know, the, the cushion or, or air that I got to kind of took up. So it doesn't make sense to me how y'all got from the, you know, the three pound, you know, boot to, to something that could be worn in athletic standpoint. So, so I, uh, I appreciate that, Kyle, because um, what became clear to me early on is that we needed to make a, a basketball shoe that, that provided two functions. Number one, that extra support you just described. Mm. But then number two, something you described kind of in the midst of that is the fact that um, we wanted to make that, that basketball shoe feel like it was a custom-made shoe for you. Right. So we wanted to fill the gaps between your foot and the shoe. Like when, 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 when a mat, when a, uh, when a shoe is, is handmade for you, they literally take measurements of your foot and they'll make the shoe specifically to that shape. Mm. When you're making a shoe, uh, in manufacturing, you choose what's called the last L A S T. The last mm -hmm. is essentially a foot shape and that will define the general volume and shape of the shoe, but it's based on, um, statistical averages, right? Right. 
So, so, so um, my left foot is a little bit shorter than my right foot, and it's a little bit different shape. Yours is, I'm sure, the same. Everyone's is. So no one has the exact same left and right. And people's, and people's feet, even if we're both a size 10 or a size 9 or 11 or whatever, our feet proportions are slightly different, right? Right. So, 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 so that's how. So the intent of the pump was to provide extra support so that you wouldn't twist your ankle or so, but then also to fill in the gaps so that that shoe could feel like a custom made shoe. Well, so what's funny about that is we had a guy on the podcast um, named Ray Dorwart, and he is a old school cowboy that used to be a cowboy like in the Dakotas and Wyoming and, and, and all that. And then he got into boot making yep. at one point and he was explaining that to me. He's like, look, your left and your right shoe are a little bit different. Cause I was having tons of trouble trying to find a Western boot that would fit because again, my, my foot's a little bit weird. It's a little bit unique. And he talked about how whenever he brings cowboys out, cause it, most of his clients are, you know, real working cowboys. He has like seven or eight different measurements he does to each individual foot. And he basically builds this Western boot, which is meant for these people to work in for years and years and years around the, the, the foot. Right. But again, like his boots started like two or three grand and there's like a year wait. And if you're just a, you know, a kid that's a basketball player and you might have two pairs of shoes that season. Cause you're growing so fast. Like I had a baseball season where I had three pairs of cleats in one summer yep. because my feet were growing so fast. I had like nine ingrown toenails because my feet were growing faster than my toenails were. And sure. so it's like, you, you have to have some sort of an idea because you can't play with, you know, a half inch of gap in the end of your foot. Like it's going to lead to ankle problems and all that. And so like, when was like the aha moment with the pump to where it's like, you know, Eureka, we've, we've done it. Like we, we made what we were looking to do. After it got, after it was sold and after people really started buying it. And, I, and the reason why I say that, I'll, I'll give you a few examples. Um, so this here, which is a, it's, it's got black stuff in it. it used to be, it used to be foam, it, yeah. but disintegrated over time. Uh, this is in 1988. So what we did basically, Kyle was we did, um, we made a what we thought was a cuff for the ankle and around the around your foot, made out of uh, the uh, PVC, the same vinyl that you uh, you float in your pool with with an air mattress. Okay. You know, so is this a cheap kind of thing? Uh, and didn't it didn't it didn't function properly, but it worked sufficiently, uh, and it actually uh, was based on some. Um, blood pressure cuff, blood pressure on uh, devices mm. and things like that. But those are butyl rubber. And, and so rubber wouldn't work. So ultimately uh, what we did was um, we put two shoes together at first. Okay. Uh, and I'll show them to you. One was this one right here. Okay. Mm. Uh, and this one was called the pro pump. This is before it was the pump. And what, what this one was, we had a little dial on this one, okay? This dial was like a little dimmer switch. It can go, it could go uh, up and down, uh, and it could go, it could make the, the air bladder f fully full, or it could bleed out a little bit, or it could be empty. And what you did was you literally filled up. I don't know if you can see this on the screen, yeah, but yeah. there's a little pump in there, okay? Mm. So every time you walked, it would fill up. I thought this was the coolest thing going, right? And I, I just did because it was super cool. So then yeah. – the second shoe that we had done was actually this one here. And this was called the Pro Shot, okay? And this one here has got a little a little valve on the side like your bicycle valve, you know, like uh, like a, a car tire or bicycle valve, and right. it's got a little pump on the back. All right? Now, I was like, yeah, this is cool, but this is, you know, you got to fill you got to pump this up. Well, we did a bunch of testing uh, in uh, in the Boston area with uh, uh, some junior college and some um, elite high school folks. Kyle, honestly, without any prompting whatsoever, we explained to the kid, uh, the uh, the players, hey, 
you know, we wanted to test these kind of shoes. Let, let us know what you think. And this is inflation, blah, blah, blah. I thought everybody was going to fucking get shoved about this because this one here automatically inflated. Okay. Everybody, when they were sitting on the bench, I'm waiting to get into the scrimmages, they would be pumping up their shoes and releasing it, pumping and releasing, pumping and releasing. So it was like uh, it was it was really eye-opening because if I had it my way, I would have done the other one. But the testers and the people who were actually using them love the mechanic, love the engagement of, of actually pumping it. So this one here has actually already fallen apart. This is the same shoe as this one here. Okay. So where we ran into so you would think that this was a uh, the eure eureka moment, right? Okay. But what happened, Kyle, was that this here goes through what's called the heel counter, okay? Mm -hmm. And in order to make it, you had your last that was in the shoe. We had to stick our hands in between this and make this little pressure fitment and things like that. And it was, it was this, these things probably took us two or three hours each to make, like, like literally. It was just impossible. So as excited as everybody was, we showed these things. We demonstrated them at this big thing called the Atlanta Shoe Show and all this kind of stuff. And they worked and people were all excited. Um, I was like, well, another brilliant move on my part. I said to the owner, this guy, Paul Farmer, I'm like, we can't make these. And he's like, well, you, you know, well, you got, you got to because they work and because, um, you know, you need to get them out. This was in February of 89. You need to have them and uh, for a holiday, Black Friday, th Thanksgiving of 1989. <laughs> And even on a good, even in a good year, you know, that was, that was pretty tight, but I'm like, Paul, these things don't work. I mean, they, they, you can't, you can't do it. So he was pretty clear with me that um, if I expected to be picking up a paycheck in December, that, um, right. <laughs> that, that this thing will be done. And so, uh, so like, okay. Um, which began this journey through February, you know, through that year, um, starting in February through to about November, that was pretty epic. And what I had done was I talked to one of my designers. He's a, Brit a British guy, but he's a head designer at Reebok, the guy who had done the freestyle and done a lot of the running shoes. He was really good. And I explained to him, this guy's Paul Brown. I said, Paul, uh, we, need to, we need to make something like this. I said, but we need to put this pump above the heel counter so we can make the fitments. We need to put it somewhere, you know, like just I, I, need, I need some styling because, as you can tell, dude, that's not me, right? <laughs> right. So, so, so I'm like, uh, so basically Paul came back about four days later with a drawing and it looked like this. Right. Uh, and I, and I said, um, and he goes, he says, uh, Lich, you know, um, you said, put the pump somewhere on the shoe. He goes, I decided to put it on the tongue. And he goes, you know, because it's round, he says, I mean, I wanted to look like a basketball. And, and Kyle, honestly, I was like, at that moment, I'm like, that's my target. That now everything we're doing, mm. I, I mean, it, it was a kind of a, it was a unilateral decision because I just knew that this, this, this embodied what we, what we needed. Right. This right. Design. And so, um, the entire program shifted and we had this, this, this template of a, uh, of, of an air, air bladder. And so we had to redesign the air bladder. We had to redesign the pump, the mechanism, the whole nine yards. We had to redesign, make the shoe, redesign it and stuff. And so uh, it became a, uh, it became a, you know, 11 months or 10 month sprint, like literally sprint. And, um, and then, and then it became the pump shoe. 
Man, I just love how you describe that because for all of us, again, I don't really have a mechanical brain or inventor's brain or something like that. And so it's like, I get something, I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And I just assume, yeah, they went right to this. But with the prototyping and the testing, and you and I have talked about a little bit of that, uh, you know, off air about some other different projects, like there's so many things that you have to go through because for me, like it makes perfect sense that it would be on the tongue. But as you're inventing it, you're, you're really not there. But that was another interesting thing about your career, Lich, is because in the time that you were at Reebok, that was a crazy technological time for, for innovation in the shoe game because Reebok had the pump, Nike created the air, Adidas had torsion and all the, all those different things as well. So I guess, what was it like for you now looking back? Cause when you're living it, you know, hour by hour, day by day, you, you probably don't notice it as much, but when you look back now and realize, man, the shoe game changed forever during the time period that you were coming up. What's, what's that kind of like when you look back? Yeah, well, when I look back, I realize how lucky I was. Honestly, dude, you know, all kidding aside, you know, and and um, it's not like just, a, you know, oh, shucks, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be humble. It's the truth. I was just super goddamn lucky to be there at that time with the skill sets that I had and the aptitude that I had. I was just I was I was blessed to be in the right place at the right time. Right. So 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 there was that. But uh, you also got to understand that a few things were happening. Number one, sports. Uh, and particularly the gear in sports was going from a, um, you know, something you have in your closet and you take it out, you know, for events to something people did all the time. You know, the fitness boom was happening. Uh, also, we didn't have cell phones. We didn't, you know, status was based on what sneakers you had. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and there weren't, there weren't a lot of other distractions, right? Like there were a certain, you know, you had apparel, you had, you had the, the apparel you wore and you, and the, and the, and the footwear you wore. And that was kind of it as far as status symbols. So there was a lot, there was a lot converging that helped to amplify uh, the atmosphere. Uh, and so, uh, and also there was, as it became more of a global environment to make things, produce things, and also distribute them, uh, it became a um, hugely lucrative and potential game-changing endeavor. So, um, Everybody, including like the chemical companies, everyone else, everyone leaned in on the sporting goods side. So it was very cool. Looking back on it, I was, like I said, I was super lucky. We, uh, um, me and a couple of buddies. Um, so I was in this small group called the Advanced Concepts Group. I was in, I was in charge of this group called the Advanced Concept Group. We had, um, we had four people in the group. That was it. Uh, but we got to go, like we went out to Dublin, California, and we met with um, this company called Hexel that made honeycomb. So we did this thing called Hexalite, which was a, a collapsible honeycomb cushioning system. And then from that, uh, um, Hexel also made the SR-71 spy plane. Yeah, yeah. So we made the first composite arch pieces okay. uh, made, made out of, uh, made out of uh, carbon fiber and uh, fiberglass. And, you know, um, it's, and I, I got some over, some over here. So we were – my little group I was super proud of because we uh, – we were, we were as thorough as we could be. Uh, we were as detailed as we could be, but we, uh, but we weren't, um, but we were the fastest and we were the, we were the most agile group in the business. We had all kinds of stuff. We did, um, we had a thing called the energy return system. We had um, Hexalite, we had Graphlite, um, we had the pump. Um, we ended up having a, a bunch of other systems as well, uh, including a thing called DMX, which is an air transfer system that, um, that, that, that I had created that, you know, was meant to be kind of a, a, a plush cushioning system. So, uh, yeah, looking back at it, it was, it was kind of the halcyon days of the technology for footwear and sporting goods, but it was also, uh, 
they were long days, dude. I mean, they were, hmm. they were long days. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like we were in a lethal environment. Okay. It wasn't as, as, as ag- aggressive or terminal as that, but there was a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure based on, you know, based on there's a lot of business, and a lot of money at hand and, you know, uh, fortunes could be made or lost pretty quickly and careers could be made or lost based on, uh, on, on where, um, where things went. And for me, that was one of the, um, it was one of my benefits, uh, for me personally, because as long as I did my job to the best of my abilities and, and I, I could sleep with a clear conscience about my effort, you know, whether I'm popular or not, I don't really give a rat's ass. I'm glad you got into all that detail because I mean, to, to have lived through the career that you did and to be able to look back on it and to have that, you know, humble respect for the time period that you were in, because, you know, the way I look at it is I love that the market kind of came around, you know, cause people were trying to be more athletic and be more high performers. And so the, the natural, you know, market decided to create companies and support companies that would kind of push that. And now we still have that. We still have that with all these companies and you have your enormous brands, but then you have these niche brands of people that are making things for a very, very specific audience or very specific reason. And I just love how it's continued to expand. But for you, and we could spend all day uh, talking more about Reebok stuff, and, and maybe we'll have you back on to, to talk more about that. But we have to talk about your transition out of Reebok and your transition to go over there with our friends at GoRuck. We already talked about GoRuck earlier in this. So this is a brand that started out, you know, a an SF guy decided to make a backpack company. And, you know, he kind of went through it with, from there and then it expanded out from the world's best ruck to include, you know, your typical t-shirts and other different performance gear, but then you got into the shoe game, which is not an easy thing to kind of create your own shoe. So give me the story of how you were wooed away or how you got introduced to the guys over at GoRuck. Well, so I want to go on record, particularly if anybody, uh, particularly if anybody on at 415 Pablo Ave um, in, in Jacksonville Beach is listening to this, I want, I want it to be known that I was wooed by Jason McCarthy. Okay. Okay. All right. That's good. Yeah. That's good to have that on the record. It is stamped now. We're good. No, no, actually, uh, but, uh, it's, it's, it's really funny. So what happened was, uh, one of my good friends at Reebok, she was in charge of the walking division and, um, Reebok was looking for the new up and coming upstart, um, you know, kind of event, uh, or, or, um, group endeavor, new company coming up. This was in 2013. And, my friend and some of the Reebok uh, marketing business people uh, got in touch with Jason and Emily, uh, and they and they asked, you know, hey, would would GoRuck be interested in doing some kind of work with with Reebok and stuff? And Jason had already had the idea that hey, maybe we can get into footwear. So um, so that relationship started. I missed the first one or two meetings or whatever. I was traveling. They didn't want they didn't want me to talk because I had my own little building off to the side. And so got to keep you away from everybody. Got to keep you separated from the riffraff. I got yeah, it. Well, yeah. Or, or the other way around, you know, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, but Kyle, it was very cool because, um, uh, when, when they finally were kind of, when Reebok was kind of finally obligated, they're like, all right, we, we got to introduce you to the guy who's probably going to be making the shoes. Um, you know, I work on this project with you. And so Jay, um, the Reebok team and Jason and Emily, they came over to my building. And dude, Jason and I met, and uh, and first thing he did, you know how Jason is. He's like, "Hey, I heard you uh, did the pump," and and he go, and he goes, uh, "How'd you do it? Where's the stuff?" So I'm like, "Well, I like you know I had all my stuff. I'm like, what's right here in the closet in my office?" He's like, well, "Let me see it." So we start we 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 started we started just jamming on 
what we did, how I did it. Uh, Jason started telling me about how he did his GR1. Uh, and, and again, two different products, but products that have got a certain point of view um, and that and that have got kind of this unyielding point of view, they, ha- they go through these steps and these filters um, in, the, in the product making process. And when Jason was explaining what he encountered doing the GR1, uh, and, uh, and I was like, oh, shit, that's, I mean, it was the exact same um, conversations, obstacles, you know, impediments that, that I encountered, but just on a different topic. You know what I mean? And, and, and we just, we just kind of hit it off. And I looked into more, I looked more into it. Uh, and then eventually um, I did my first event, uh, which was a, uh, a 12 hour uh, Go Rock Tough challenge. Um, and, uh, and I, at the end of, I didn't, I literally was, I flew in, in from Asia, uh, landed in Boston, drove out to Worcester, which is a city in central Massachusetts, and um, started doing this this event that night. Uh, and I thought like, I thought it was like a Spartan race at first. So I'm, I'm like, okay, this will be like two or three hours. I told my wife, I'm a, you know, I'm like, hey, I'm going to go do this thing. I'll be back, I don't know, midnight or something. It starts at nine o'clock. I didn't, I wasn't really paying attention. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and so, dude. I, uh, I got, I got some pretty good lessons that night. Uh, I got, I got some hardcore lessons and, but when it, when it got done, I was, I was just, uh, I was committed. I was just committed because, um, bottom line is that what, what Jason and the cadre do, um, is they force you to work harder than you think you can or harder than you think you should. And yet it is not to beat the person next to you. It's basically to make sure you both do it together. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and, and the only way you finish is, is you, is you, is you finish together. And, and to me, it was just such a refreshing kind of point of view, uh, versus all the competitive stuff that, that I've done and all the competitive stuff at Reebok. So everything's always, you know, like, even if you had a tough mud or a Spartan race, you know, you're doing it against a clock, you're doing it against your own PR, you're doing it to beat your buddy or something. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Uh, and, and, and the go rock events weren't like that at all. It was team building team challenges. Uh, there's a service component to it. So I was just, I was, I was, Kyle, I was just hooked. And at that point in time, I'm like, all right, cool. I, I, I kind of understand, or I have a, I have an introduction to the go rock energy, the go rock commitment. And so then Jason and I started working on footwear. And what happened was in, in a, in a long story, there were a lot in a big company. There are a lot of people that feel either compelled to, or that are required to input on a product. Okay. And what happens is it, it invariably will push a product to the midline, you know? Mm-hmm. So if, if it's really extreme on one way or another, um, more 99% of the time, the product ends up becoming a little more vanilla, right? Because, because people, because what happens if somebody doesn't like it? What yeah, sure. Like the color? What happens? It's like, and I was like, I don't care. Well, at the same time, there's a lot of other things going on. Um, and, I was almost 30 years into this thing at Reebok. And finally uh, me and the CEO came to a break point and, um, and, and I left. Now you might say like, that must've been super traumatic. It was kind of, except I left, I left Reebok in 98 also because back in 98 Reebok. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to backtrack for one second. Okay. Yeah. When we were doing really well at Reebok uh, from uh, the late 80s into uh, the 90s, uh, it was based on a small group of people working really hard and being super lucky, like we were in the right place at the right time. 
Uh, Reebok started getting all kinds of accolades in in 1980 in 1990 and 91. We're the biggest shoe company in the world, bigger than Nike, bigger than Adidas, bigger than everybody, right? And we were we were just crushing it. And it was based on oppor- us being opportunists and and being in the right place at the right time. It wasn't a it wasn't a freaking plan. It just wasn't. Now we were we were patching plans together as we went, but it wasn't like this was a grand you know kind of NBA case study on right. like. You know, well, people start inside of Reebok started believing it was. And just when Reebok started, you know, becoming fat, dumb and happy, in my opinion, uh, Nike uh, was was going fucking austere. They were going super, super lean. Fire, uh, Phil Knight uh, had gotten all the uh, all the uh, the Nike people back uh, into a big meeting in Sun River, Oregon, kind of a famous one. And he basically kind of cleaned house and he said never again are we going to mention a competitor's name we're all only about nike but since that day everybody at nike has done an unbelievable job at keeping on growing the company because they didn't want to lose again right reebok was heading in a different direction finally in 97 um i had kind of had enough and uh, i became um president of puma footwear so i was in charge of puma um uh footwear for um for um, you know the Adidas Puma guys out in out, out in Germany, so I did that for a couple of years, and then Fireman invited me back. So I had left. Re- My point is, I had left Reebok at one time before. Right. So this time here in uh, in in um, in late fourteen, I was like, you know what, I'm I'm done. It's just time. And so I left and I started my own little consulting business. And uh, Jason asked me to be on the board of advisors at GoRock, so um, I joined the board. Uh, and and then we uh, we continue to work together on making this boot. And I used some of my contacts that I've had over the years, the guys that actually made the pump, um, the factory group that made this shoe here, the first pump shoe back in 1989, uh, is the same group we're working on, uh, we're working with out of Vietnam that makes our GORUCK boots and our GORUCK footwear. And so um, I've known these guys for a long time, uh, these folks, and they, We've made great business together, and so they they agreed to do the GORUCK stuff because um, Jason came out to Vietnam, met with everybody, and all these all these folks were uh, both Vietnamese and Koreans. They were like, "Yeah, this guy is this guy's legit, right?" You know, you yeah. know how Jason is, right? So yeah, it uh, it 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 worked out it worked out well, and so we started working on the Mac V1 boot uh, with um, with this factory in Vietnam, and we chose Vietnam because. Um, one of our, 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 one of our business, one of our teammates is Richard Rice. And Richard was a um, Green Beret, Mac V saw Green Beret in Vietnam. He spent a long bunch of time in Vietnam working there in the, uh, in the sixties and seventies or early seventies. And, um, you know, it was like, it had a lot of kind of heritage on the Green Beret side and all that. So uh, we started making the boots there. And then ultimately, um, when the boot was finished and we were getting ready to launch it, Jason asked me to, if I'd be willing to come on board and, and work at the company full time. And because I already, I was already doing that kind of, I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll do yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, but yeah, so no. And, and, and so that's how it happened. So I, 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 I was again, honestly, Kyle, I was in the right place at the right time. Jason happened to be in this meeting that he came up to at, Re, at Reebok back in 13. Uh, we met, we hit it off. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I, I loved his intensity. Uh, I loved his attitude. I mean, he's a, he could be a Bostonian with how much of a wise ass he is. Right. So, <laughs> uh, 
so 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 it just it just it just works and uh, and I liked his commitment to making product uh, in ways that uh, that he believes are important and that make a difference and all that. And, you know, and I say that he believes that there's a million ways to get to the center of the bullseye. Right. And so, and so, you know, we pick for any of our gear, you know, or any of our product, uh, our rucks, our apparel, our footwear, we, um, we pick a pathway and we choose certain features and benefits. We choose certain attributes and we just go, we, you know, we, we, we go for it. We dog at it till we get it done. And, and, and so there's a, you know, there's a an awful lot of different paths that we can go down in that in that in that kind of um, with that kind of a philosophy or commitment to getting it done in a particular way. Well, that that's really incredible, and I appreciate you going into that detail because it does seem like it was is a perfect marriage. And in Lich, I mean, we could spend the rest of the day talking about all these different things, but I know you and I both got places we need to be. So, as a last question of the day, to kind of even summarize uh, some of the things that you've done, I'd like to know kind of what you're working on now, because obviously, knowing what I know about you and knowing what I know about Jason, y'all aren't looking to just only perfect the Mac V1 and make it even better with different colorways and a little bit of an extra improvement here, even though you are going to do that. I'm sure y'all are looking at what the next thing is because more people are getting into rucking, more people are getting into working outside in the elements, more people are getting into hunting and bow hunting and mountaineering and all these different things. So fitness is continuing to involve. So as we wrap up here, what are you working on now that you can tell us about on air? Because this will go out to everybody. You and I will have our separate conversation later. And kind of where do you see everything moving towards? So um, so thanks for that ca- caveat because uh, I can't tell you what I'm working on. Okay. Um, All right. And, fair enough. No, no. But with that being said, uh, you're, you're spot on. Um, go Rock is focusing now in a couple of different domains. And one of the ones that I think is very cool is this fitness domain that we have going on now. We got kettlebells. We got medicine balls. We got... Uh, sandbags. We, we, we got basically um, this, we have this gear that addresses this philosophy we have that, you know, bring, you should always have your gym with you and available, right? right. And, and it's like in your gym, I mean, if you are made of money and if you have all the, you know, and if you're in one space all the time, you can always go to your, you know, I don't know, Planet Fitness or wherever you go or your, or your CrossFit box or something like that. But you can have a gym in your backyard with a rucksack, mm-hmm. weight, um, some good footwear, you know, sandbags, kettlebells, and we do this. Uh, we do this thing called SRT training, sandbag ruck training. Uh, we have a great program that is uh, that um, Dan Skidmore, Cadre DS, uh, is 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 uh, is heading up, and we're pushing out to the public these um, capsules of how to train, how to train fundamentally, how to train with some advanced movements, how to, you know, how to get really functionally fit. And I think um, if you look at that, where we're at right now, Kyle, uh, Go Rock heading into that space of uh, endurance performance and um, uh, an endurance kind of um, power performance. So imagine you, you, you blend ultra endurance with, with, um, with some kick-ass wads. You know, right. so, so, you know, there, there is a, there is an untapped space there where people are actually beginning to train in this area of functional fitness, um, with discipline and with, and with organization, but not necessarily always in their box. They might right. be somewhere else. They might be out somewhere. They believe traveling, they're mobile. They want, they want the versatility of being able to, 
to do their workouts and train wherever they are and however they are. And, and, and so go rocks addressing that. And on the, on the project side, um, I could, I could probably show you a couple things right back here, but, uh, but I can't, I'll do it afterwards. But, uh, you know, we, we, we do have a bunch of new footwear coming. Um, don't be surprised if we were to come out with some great running shoes. Don't be surprised if we come out with some, uh, new, uh, performance rocking hiking shoes. Uh, don't be surprised if we come out with um, some of the best. No, not some. The best wool socks ever made. Um, and, and I mean, these are just hypotheticals, okay? Of course, hypothetically. Yeah. Just hypothetically speaking, because for me, hypothetically speaking, Lich, all that stuff sounds super interesting. And hypothetically, I would be a good test case for a lot of that information, a lot of that gear. And hypothetically, you and I have talked about that just in case anything like that were to actually materialize. Exactly. And so hypothetically, because we would have your actual address, I'm sure that hypothetically things could show up. You know, well, we, yeah, maybe. But again, we're just talking science fiction at this <laughs> point. But I will tell you the thing that's awesome about that is you, here's your proof of concept. COVID was yeah. your proof of concept for the stuff that you're doing because all of a sudden gyms were shut down. Yep. Now for a guy like me that has a home gym that has built that up over time, nothing changed for me. I went out in the garage and got after it. But my friends that were d- dependent on the Globo gym, all of a sudden they had this attack of conscience like, oh my gosh, I, am I just going to get fat now? Like I can't work out. People are asking me to come work out in my gym and that is no, nobody works out with me. That is my own. That is my me time. Like whenever I'm lifting, I'm not paying attention to anything other than my form and trying to survive. But that is the proof of concept. You know, I tell the people this all the time. Before I got my home gym set up, I didn't want to lose, you know, what I had gotten to in terms of my ability to do pull-ups. And so before I got my gym set up for about a month, I did pull-ups on a tree in my neighbor's yard because they had a branch that came out horizontal to the ground or parallel to the ground. And so here I was doing pull-ups on the tree like a madman. And I'm new to the neighborhood, right? But it's like, if you're wanting to get after it, you need a few little tools. So the sandbags and, you know, the sand kettlebells and the regular kettlebells and, and the slam balls and like all the different things. And again, whenever I talk to Jason, it's like, get a backpack. Like if you can't afford a go ruck, ruck, you know, y'all aren't going to make them any cheaper, but if you can't afford that, get a backpack and put some weight in it. And so I love what you guys are doing. I love some of the stuff that we aren't able to talk about here, but hopefully one day or very soon we'll be able to talk about a lot of that stuff. But as for now, Lich, that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest before you get you out of here? Yeah, no, I actually just want to thank you a lot for supporting Go Ruck, giving me the time. And hopefully this uh, has been interesting and not too confusing for your listeners. I think it's been amazing. I think there's some great things and we're teeing up a lot of great stuff in the future because as y'all start rolling out more things, you're coming back on. Jason's going to come back on. We fully believe in the mission that you guys are putting out there and the products you're getting out there to everybody. So I'm so thankful we had you on. But Paul Litchfield, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks, Carl. Appreciate it, brother. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Paul Litchfield. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the link I've got for you today is the link to the Go Ruck website. Guys, check them out. Try to you know get some of their gear, add it to the stuff that you're doing. And they've got a bunch of amazing stuff that's coming down the pike here soon. So you definitely want to check that out. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, 
to shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album, Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.